Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. You've been with us for the last year or so. We've been walking through the book of John. And the passages that we're about to look at in John 19 and John 20 are the culmination of so much that's happening in the Scriptures, not just in the book of John, but also in the book, the whole entire book of the Bible. Jesus told us in, in Luke 23 and 24, He said that all the law and the Psalms and the prophets testify about Him. He told us that we should look at all of the Old Testament through the lens of what Jesus has provided. And in the story, starting in Genesis chapter 3, God pronounced that someday a son of Eve was going to come and crush the serpent's head, that there was going to be an heir from Abraham that would lay claim to all the promises that God had made to him, that there was someone that was going to sit on King David's throne forever. But in a twist that no one would have predicted, this king, this heir apparent to the, the promise of Abraham and so many other Old Testament passages, would also become the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, the sacrifice. Isaiah 53 told us that he was to be despised and rejected by men. Today, John shows us that this promised king was to become this Passover lamb. Here's our big idea. Big idea is this, that King Jesus was destined for death. We're going to see this in three primary movements as we kind of walk through our passage. We're going to start off and see that the king is to be crucified in verses 17 through 22. And then when we get to 23 through 37, Jesus is going to meet his appointed death. We're going to see this as as John just gives us these scripture quotations to show us exactly what was to happen, was being fulfilled, as if this was kind of in the works for centuries. And then finally, we're going to see that Jesus is buried by unlikely disciples. Our tone this morning should be somber, shouldn't it? We read a heavy text. We have a heavy theme in front of us, but there should also be some joy hidden beneath this passage, right? This subject of crucifixion is heavy because it's my sin that sent Jesus, the king, to this cross. But because my sin went to the cross, I can find rich joy in this passage. So with that being said, I want to invite us into this first point that King Jesus is crucified. So turn with me. If you have the Pew Bible, it's on page 905. We're in John 19. We're going to start in verse 17. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Here we see the details of Jesus's crucifixion, right? We see uh, that these words should have a a somberness to them, that uh, we describe the death of the life giver, the end of the beginner, the mortality of the immortal. 
And of course, we, we know that chapter 20 is going to bring resolution to this kind of tension that's brought up, that Jesus will eventually rise from the dead. But here, it's appropriate for us just to consider the suffering of Jesus, which we cause. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, like Isaiah says. And notice how John describes it. He first, he names this place, the, the place of the skull. It's a spot just devoted to death. And we can know what the outcome is going to be just based upon the name that's given here. And John goes on to describe it. It's, it's, it's the place of the skull, and he, he's forced to carry his own cross, a symbol of him bearing all of our sin and shame, and they carries that to the site of his own crucifixion, and they crucify him. I don't need to spell out the details this morning of what that means, but uh, we know that they, they pierce in between the, uh, the bones of the arm to pin you to a cross, and they pierce your feet to the cross so that you have to press yourself up to draw in oxygen. And what it is is just this agonizing death that can go on for days and days. So he's crucified there amongst these thieves and robbers. Verse 18 tells us that he gets this specific placement between two sinners. It shows us that Jesus is given no special treatment. There's no special treatment here for Christ. He's considered as one of the criminals to be put to death. But notice what happens next in verses 19 through 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write this, or the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. What's going on here? Pilate writes this sign. This was a common practice that if you were going to condemn somebody to death, as they would carry their cross to their own crucifixion, you would hang a sign over their neck that would detail their crime. It was kind of a public service announcement of like, hey, you don't want to do this. You don't want to uh, cause an insurrection or you don't want to rob someone or whatever else. This is the punishment for what that looks like. But when they come, uh, it comes time to kind of write out what Jesus's crimes were. The only thing that Pilate can think of is this man thought of himself as the king of the Jews. So he writes the king of the Jews on this sign and they post it to his cross. Causes consternation with these uh, religious leaders that are there, and they're pushing back. And finally, Pilate just says, no, what I've written, I've written. His only crime, Jesus's only crime, was being the king of God's people. See, we recognize as we pull away from this section that Jesus is a true king. See, John does this all the time throughout his gospel. He works in layers of meaning. See, Pilate has a specific intention to mock the Jews. In fact, this has been uh, his tone since the beginning of this trial. He always wants to portray Jesus as king, and every time he does it, the, the Jews themselves and the crowd get riled up, and they fight back against them, and it culminates all the way to chapter 18, verse 15, where he says, we have, the crowd shouts out, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate's uh, angle here is to just continually just... Uh, Stick the finger in the eye of this Jewish crowd, this Jewish audience. But there's another layer of meaning that's beneath that, that Jesus is a true king. 
You've seen this in the last few weeks. Jesus is a rejected king. In John 18, Jesus has a discussion with Pilate about his authority, and he's saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And he pushes back at Pilate. He says, you would have no authority unless it was given you from heaven. And he's saying, I'm truly a king, but my kingdom's not here. It's not now. So in John 19, Jesus is, is mocked. He's a king, and they put on a crown of thorns and a, a purple robe, and they slap him and hit him, and they whip him and beat him, and they hit him while they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews, right? And so John is portraying for us this true king who is rejected by his people. And finally, it kind of culminates to this rejection by his people that echoes what we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where, where God said to Samuel, the prophet in the Old Testament, saying, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me as their king. But this king is appointed to die. In verses 23 through 27, John wants to tie Jesus's death to the authority of the scriptures. And what we're going to see now as we turn to this next section is not just that this king is going to die, he's going to be crucified. We're going to see that John wants to highlight this as the portrayal of all these things that are predicted in the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to quote from the Psalms, and we're going to quote from the law, and we're going to quote from the prophets, and it's going to show us that all three of the sections of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so he starts in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So we see this first quotation. In these verses, we get these three different sections, and no one's going to pull it up for you here on the uh, PowerPoint. We see three different sections where we get quotations of Scripture. Verse 24, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's a quotation from Psalm 22, 18. And in verse 28, we're going to get another quotation. After this, Jesus, knowing what was that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And this is a, a culmination or a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. And then in verses 36 and 37, we get two quotations, one from Exodus chapter 12 and one from Zechariah chapter 12. And it talks about not having bones broken and uh, looking on those whom they pierced. And we'll talk about that here in a second. But we can see that all three of these sections have a quotation that's assigned to them. And John is inviting us to say, Jesus is is the fulfillment of all that has been said in the Old Testament. And so in this first section, in verses 23 through 27, these soldiers divide Jesus' garments amongst themselves. I guess it was kind of common practice. If you had done the work of putting someone on a cross, you got to divide up their stuff. And so these soldiers start splitting up the stuff. But when they get to this, this uh, tunic, it's kind of this long 
robe that goes underneath all of your other clothes against your skin. When they got to that, it was so nice. It was of one piece that if they split it up, it would have lost its value. So they play a dice game to figure out who's going to get this one piece tunic. Now, it's worth noting that the last time we saw Jesus disrobe himself, the last time we saw Jesus take off his tunic was when we were in John 13. Jesus set aside his garments and he knelt and he washed his disciples' feet. Served his disciples then. He's serving them here. John gives the quotation then in verse 24 from Psalm 22. And if you're not familiar with Psalm 22, it's kind of a familiar scene, right? In fact, it it begins with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the psalm describes a man who's surrounded by enemies. He's mocked and beaten and stripped, but the man is trusting in the goodness of God while he's going through these hardships and these difficulties, and it reminds us of the crucifixion that was going to happen some centuries later. But the contrast between verses 23 and 24 and verses 25 through 27 is is strong. It's stark, right? We have these, these soldiers that are dividing up the garments of this person they're putting to death. Meanwhile, Jesus is just looking for somebody to take care of his mom. Jesus is looking at John as a disciple saying, hey, behold your mother, behold your son, right? I need someone to take care of her while I'm gone. In verses 28 through 30, we see Jesus do another action that fulfills the Scriptures. Look at verse 28 with me. After this, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Yet again, we have another scriptural quotation. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he has this knowledge, and he presses in, uh, said to fulfill the scripture. He recognizes that he's fulfilling the scriptures themselves and what he's about to speak. He says, I thirst. This is kind of a reference to Psalm 69, In verse 21, Psalm 69 says, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And that's exactly what they offer Jesus. They kind of uh, grab a hyssop branch. If you know what hyssop is, it's just like this kind of loose leafy branch. I don't even know how it would hold a sponge, but sure enough, they finagle it in such a way and they reach up the sponge to Jesus's mouth and he takes a drink and he says, it's finished. It's over. It's fulfilled. Everything has been accomplished, right? He's not just talking about this is the end. He's saying this is the fulfillment. This is what has happened. Everything has been accomplished now. Notice what he says in verse 28. Uh, He said, in order to fulfill the scriptures, that Jesus is initiating the fulfillment of the scriptures here. Finally, in verses 31 through 37, Jesus' body is pierced also to fulfill the Scriptures. Look at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it also bears witness. His testimony is true, and he, he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on whom they have, on him whom they have pierced. What happens? What's happening with all of this? Why are we breaking legs? Why are we taking spears? Why are we doing all of this? What's happening in this passage? Well, the Jews that are overseeing this are worried about law keeping, right? And so in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, I think it's 24 or 21, there's a prophecy that if you have someone hanged on a tree, you're not supposed to let them stay there overnight. Further, the day of preparation is at hand, and they're looking at the Sabbath. They're looking at Passover weekend. They don't want to do work on the Sabbath day, which is quickly approaching. So they're asking Pilate to speed up this process of their death. And if you break the legs, they won't be able to pull themselves up and gather breath, and they will die more quickly. So sure enough, they start with the man on the left, and they start with the man on the right, and they break their legs so that they might die more quickly. But when they get to Jesus, they recognize Jesus is already dead. After all, he had just been beaten. He just received lashes, as other gospels will tell us about. Just carried his cross. So there he is, dead. And when they go to pierce his side, it's not just blood that flows out, it's blood and water showing that he's truly past, that he's truly dead. John goes off in this kind of directive comment in verses 35. He who saw it was born witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. He's writing these things for the sake of belief in his hearers so that we might hear and respond in faith, that we might listen to what John is describing. And then he goes into these quotations. The first is fitting, right? Exodus chapter 12. You know what Exodus chapter 12 tells us about? It tells us about the Passover and how to prepare the Passover. And in referring to a lamb, it says not one of his bones will be broken. When you are going to take the Passover lamb and you are going to spread his blood on the doorpost and on the lintel so that the angel of the Lord passed over your house and didn't bring death to you like it brought death to all of the Egyptians, you were supposed to take this hyssop branch and spread it on the doorpost and lintel, but you were not supposed to break any of its bones. Just like Jesus did not have any of his bones broken, they didn't break his legs, they simply pierced his side. The second quotation they will look on him whom they have pierced. It's from Zechariah chapter 12. And Zechariah chapter 12 describes this reflection of the Jews that they'll eventually look back upon with shame how they rejected the Messiah. They'll look back on that with shame and recognize how wrong they were. See, what all of this culminates to is that God is showing us, and John is showing us, that all of these things have been predicted. That Jesus uniquely has chosen his death, that he's kind of stepped into this kind of divine interaction as he and God the Father have worked together. He stepped into this willingly. Jesus was not unwilling to go to the cross. He didn't accidentally get caught up in some kind of conspiracy. He wasn't unaware of these Jewish, Jewish rulers, uh, you know, 
rejection of him. He was fully aware of all of these things and chose to be obedient in it. See, Jesus went willingly to his own death. If you remember back in John chapter 10, Jesus is having this discussion about how he is the good shepherd. And he says this, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in verse 18, it kind of culminates. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. See, no one has taken Jesus's life in faithfulness to his father. He willingly has died. See, this is the king of heaven's death, his willing death. And here, John is depicting Jesus's full knowledge, according to verse 28, and complicity in chapter 10, verse 18, of his own willing self-sacrifice. See, the word we might use here is intentional or purposeful. Jesus is giving his intentional life and sacrifice, his purposeful life and sacrifice for others. And we live in a day and age that is so tolerant of meaningless death, aren't we? Think about this. Think about the last hundred years of our history and the meaningless death that has plagued us. Whether you talk about gang violence or cancer battles or war or whatever else it might be, there is meaningless death all around us. In fact, we've just come out of just the bloodiest century we've ever seen. And as a culmination of that, we've decided as a nation that killing infants and killing babies was okay. And in the face of our meaningless death, we see one death with intention and purpose. What is the intention? What is Jesus' intention in his death? Why are all of these prophecies given about someone who would come and die? I think John, in his wisdom as a writer, wants to give us a picture of why Jesus had to die. Look at verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the day where he was crucified, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I talk a little bit. There's two characters that are mentioned here by John. Now we recognize when we read the other gospel accounts, they're not the only two people there. Matthew tells us that there's two Marys there, Mary the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene will come back in John chapter 20, come back. So she's obviously involved in this burial custom. She knows what's happening. Why then does John only highlight these two men? And what's his point? Notice what John tells us about these two men. 
We know lots of things about Joseph of Arimathea. All of the gospel accounts tell us about him. He was, he was a rich man. He was a part of the council. He had all of these things going on. But, but John kind of summarizes him into these few facts. Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Secretly. He was a secret disciple. He didn't want to broadcast broadly to his contemporaries, to his friends that he was a disciple of Jesus. Notice what happens. He describes exactly what he says or why that was the case. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Joseph of Arimathea understood exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 8, that these were the sons of their father, Satan, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He's taking into account that these men will stop at nothing to protect their power, to protect their authority. So he's afraid. What about Nicodemus? Notice what John tells us about Nicodemus in verse 39. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Nicodemus is this guy who came to Jesus at night. Not because he was too busy during the day, because he was secretive. See, both of these men come in fear to Jesus. But look at what they do now. And they're not mocked by fear. These are bold actions. Joseph of Arimathea, the secret disciple, approaches Pilate, who just put his Savior to death, and asks for the body of the one they just killed for insurrection. He works up the, 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 the strength of spirit to go to the ruler of the land and say, that guy you just killed for standing against Rome, I like him. I want to be a part of him. I want to take his body. And Nicodemus, Nicodemus is one, he's hauling around 75 pounds of, birth, or of death ointments, right? It's not something you do in secret. You don't just secretly haul around a bag of, of these ointments to bury someone after a very public uh, crucifixion has just taken place. Nicodemus is coming out of, of his uh, fear and shame of his association with Jesus, and he's recognizing that he belongs to him. They, men are, are tying themselves to the, the fate of Jesus Christ. And so what they do is they take the body of Jesus and they do all of the burial customs. They wrap him in spices and they put everything there. This body of Jesus laid in this new tomb. There's no expectation there. But there is an end of their fear. See, Jesus' death is an end of fear, isn't it? If we go back and we just kind of tug on the thread of, of the scriptures that talks about fear, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin against God. They, they take that forbidden fruit, they eat the apple, and they fight against God. They kind of, uh, kind of puff themselves up in rebellion against God. They go and they hide themselves. In Genesis 3 verse 10, Adam and God are having this conversation, and Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was what? I was afraid. Adam, who was made in the image of God, Adam, who would walk in the cool of the garden with God, is now afraid of God because of his sin. God has created in him this response to sinfulness that, that creates fear. 
In fact, it's a classic response for us to hide in fear, isn't it? I remember once uh, when my kids were younger, there was one of my children that had uh, disobeyed in a very specific way. And when I was calling out for his name, just saying, hey, where are you? Where are you? He had hidden himself in the house. It took me you know, 10, 15 minutes just to find him. To fear is a natural response to our sin. Fear is tied to our, our sense of frailty. We become afraid when we realize we're not capable of avoiding the negative outcomes that we can't control, right? But one of these fears is a legitimate fear of God's judgment. In fact, it's probably the foremost of all fears. We might describe it as the central fear that all people face. We, we sense this fear that we would be judged by God, that we would fall short of God's righteousness, that we would be left outside of God's good grace. We recognize that our sinfulness has created a debt that we cannot repay ourselves and that we deserve this judgment. We deserve to be separated from God, and we are right to be fearful of God in that sense. But here's what's so beautiful about our passage this morning is that God eradicates fear in the gospel. John would later comment on this in, in 1 John verse four, or chapter 4, verse 18. John says this, he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has been perfected or has not been perfected in love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. See, Jesus has faced our greatest fear. He has been told exactly what would happen to him. He was face down exactly all of these prophecies that he would be rejected, that he would be put to death. He knew going to Calvary that this is exactly what would go on. He knew that he would be betrayed by Judas, that he would stand trial before Annas and Pilate, that he would be beaten for no reason, that his own countrymen would turn on him, and that he would uh, the, the crowd around him would demand the release of Barabbas and ultimately play, pledge allegiance to Caesar himself so that Jesus would have to go to a cross. Jesus knew that he was going to drink the cup of his father's wrath, and so he showed that he could have confidence as he bore the judgment of God on our behalf. He showed us his love by bearing his father's wrath at our sin. The truth this morning is that Jesus' death should eradicate fear. Fear is a strange thing, isn't it? First, we should probably say this. Not all fear is sin. At the very least, we recognize that the Bible constantly advocates that we would have a fear of the Lord. And that's not sin. That's not wrong. There's natural responses of fear that are good and right. You should be afraid of a bear. You should be afraid of a, of a wood chipper. You should be afraid of Mike Tyson. All of those things are scary, right? You should have a healthy fear of certain things that present us in the world because we are frail, fragile creatures. But in the face of our frailty, the gospel gives us an eternality, a durability that should eradicate our fears. 
We should see ourselves as raised to new life with Jesus Christ. We should be able to face our fears to some degree because we know that we have eternal life. See, ongoing, persistent fear has to be submitted to this new identity of what Jesus has done. The the fear of God that was found in Adam in the garden uh, should be undone and stripped away through confidence in Jesus Christ. John says it in our verse here, 1 John 4. He says, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If our fear of eternal judgment is eradicated, what really is there for us to be afraid of? See, what our passage shows us this morning is a gruesome, horrific death and the confidence that two men derive from that death. When we look at chapter 20, we're going to see the various responses of, of men and women to Jesus' resurrection. But the response to Jesus' crucifixion is a confidence, a confidence in fear. Fearful men, fearful women can be emboldened by Jesus' death. Isn't that true? I wonder if we might be people who are emboldened in the face of death because of the death of Christ. I wonder if we might be those that are more confident because of the confidence that Christ had. I wonder if we might find the confidence, not just in ourselves, but the confidence that Jesus is our advocate before the throne of God. Jesus is now advocating before God's throne on our behalf. And what can man do to me? What can man take from me? What is it that is so fearful? Am I afraid of some person out there, what they'll say, what they'll do, what they'll take? What, what is it that I'm afraid of? What can a man or a person or a thing do to me that threatens my status with God on high? What is it? I wonder if we might come to the same place that Paul comes in Romans chapter 8 when he says that, oh, it just flipped out of my mind, excuse me. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And at the end of that chapter, he says, you know, shall height or depth or any other created thing separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ? No, of course not. There's nothing that will separate us. There's nothing to be afraid of. I wonder if we might be those who take our fears, our healthy fears, and submit them to our greater fear of the Lord to find in God's presence a a reverence for God that eradicates all of our other fears, that takes away and strips away our fears of the future of others or whatever else it may be. I want to pray this morning. I want to pray that God allows us to overcome our fears and allows us to be men and women of rich faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask now that you would allow us to face our fears with the confidence of the cross. Give us a strength of mind. We can recognize that whatever it is that threatens us cannot strip our status with you. Nothing can take us from your goodness and grace in Christ. Make us 
Make us those who face our fears with confidence because of our trust in the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.